I simply don't understand this Luddite attitude, especially from a scientist. I mean, how can we stand in the light of discovery and, and not act? Oh, what's so great about discovery? It's a violent, penetrative act that scars what it explores, what you call discovery. I call the rape of the natural world. Welcome to Pivotal Film. This is Tom Nolan. Deep breath edition Tom Nolan. Deep breath. Oh. A lot of weeks upon <laughs> weeks upon weeks of deep breaths. And I'm Mario Ponzio. And this is the midway point. It's a 51. The big old middle. Mm-hmm. If this was a football game, we would almost be in the defense's territory, right? Defense, the, other, the other team's territory. It depends on which way you're going. I mean, you're going. I mean, if you're not getting. Well, they don't do zero to 100 yards. Yeah, zero to. So it's 50. just like 50. And then, like, the but, next one's like yeah. we're 49. In, we're in enemy territory. Technically. We're in no man's land, that Bosnian film. Yeah. That's, that's what this is. That's what's happening. We are now. halfway through the life cycle. We are. Well, no, we're probably. We probably will continue this podcast after we get to number one, but. But number but the one is the life cycle. Yeah. Anything that happens after that, it's like a, it's like a, you and know. And then we will, after me and thing. Tom will go into a cocoon, mm-hmm. turn into some sort of molten larva, and emerge probably exactly the same. We just won't have a list. Just maybe a little shorter. Yeah. Or wrinklier. Damn it. I don't know. I thought I was going to have a, a, a butterfly. more, Tom. Hydrate more. It's hard when you're in a cocoon. Hydrate. What if it's sunny? What if you put your what if you like a a branch falls? Hydrate under a waterfall. You can't be a cocoon under a waterfall though. No, not if we have Mothra. Not with that attitude. Not with that attitude. (laughs) Yeah, Mothra did it. She's a little different. Her cocoon is the exact size of the waterfall, so there was no danger of it going anywhere. Although nobody knew it was there. The scientists. Small waterfall. Yeah, we'll we'll figure it out. Yeah, there's got to be some place that has a, a Mothra waterfall. Um. So yeah, this is week two of the stuff in my fridge week. This was bought to go to a craft beer party where everyone was supposed to bring a different craft beer to have like a taste what, test. What happened? Uh, my wife didn't feel good, so we didn't go. So it was just in the she fridge. She just did not. She didn't want to drink craft beer. She not. She a beer person. She's not a, a drinker at all. Um, oh right. She but she was drink. prepared to drink some stuff, but she just didn't feel good, so we didn't go. Which is fine because then this got to stay in my fridge. It is uh, Hermit Thrush Brewery out of Brattleboro, Vermont. It is their Poe Tweet. It's a kettle soured pale ale with local hops. They are exclusively sours, no, Hermit they Thrush. Are. They are. I've had one also, of their beers and it was pretty good. Don't you like that linen finish on the? Uh, it's beautiful. I feel like there's. I spend... feel like I feel like this was a Kickstarter, like a Kickstarter beer, uh-huh. like one of the add-ons. As, as a board game nerd, one of the add-ons was like a linen finish can with like raised embroidered kind of like metallic lettering. No, they do the same thing for lettering like, for records. Like, oh, it comes in a, a cardboard. They do woven slipcase. They do. It's like, why would you Kickstarters do that? for records? Sure, they do. Really? I did a Kickstarter for records. Join our inners for our rock opera. We did not. Man? We did not meet our our goal. <laughs> so that record never got made. Motherfuckers. Mm. Well, now that we've told our all our listeners about it you can redo it 
Yeah, there you go. People, chip in people. We're not asking you for anything. Throw some at the, at the joint runners. Um, but yeah, so I had one, uh, a $10 single beer of theirs. It was like a special or whatever. It was very good. It was a sour again. It was with like apples and cranberry or something. It was delicious. Not even like brewed with it. It was They just threw apples and cranberry just into like the beer. Chunks. Yeah. And even, it was even actually a, a beer cereal. Oh, it smells good. I am loving the sour experience, man. Didn't you say you weren't a big sour person? No, I've been really into the sours. But you weren't a sour person initially, right? Oh my god, that's good. Um, my because I think this... I've, had, I've only had I had only had bad sours previously, but now people are really trying to do like good work with the sours. It's good. You have to go OEC. We'll have to do an OEC. We will have to. Yeah. yeah. Uh, my problem. I've had this before. My problem with this, and it's a good sour. I don't know if it's the kettle part of it. I don't know. Um, and it's definitely a pale. Is that it's really balanced. So it starts to feel like it's going to have a certain aggressiveness to it. Or uh, assertive, an assertiveness yeah. Yeah, yeah. To, it, to it. And, um, and that just kind of finishes as a pale. Like a really well-balanced pale. But like you, you feel this. You feel like you're embarking on a journey of flavor. And it kind of finishes in just like being satisfying. Well, that's interesting because we last week with the uh, front porch, it also had that kind of like front palate explosion, and then as it moves back, it's just like it softens, and you're just kind of like, no. well, well, that was it was pretty good. I like my sours to be kind of like a, you know a puckery sour. That, well, the other thing I'll say about raspberry this raspberry sour. It, well, exactly, or just like the the black raspberry, the lemon goes like that has um, an additional flavor on top of the sour. This the hops are supposed to do that here. I think they're just not popping. No, they're yeah. not popping the same way that the black raspberry did, or the or like I said, the apple cranberry did, or the. Um, or like the obviously the the lemon goes, which I can like I taste sometimes in my sleep, but that's. I had friends. That's a we problem. went to uh, East Rock Brewing this weekend. Surprise, surprise, um, and uh, everyone everyone loved the lemon goes. <sighs> Gotta love the lemon People goes. People are starting to say it's one of the better breweries in Southern Connecticut, and I'm having to agree. I would hundred percent agree. If we if we make the dividing line Middletown, I would say right now it probably goes. OEC is my number one, mm-hmm. but I'm a, I'm a sour crazed guy. And then, and then, New England, slightly. But are you just like saying that because they've been around for so long? No, I'm not. Because like, because I feel so like East Rock's like, beers are really like pushing. Have been consistently good, but there's like they're still doing styles I don't love. Like, well, I'm I guess not that's a big Oktoberfest yeah. guy. I'm not a big you know, for the most part, I'm not a big Vienna Lager guy. But those um, beers are good. Yeah, they're they're everything they're doing if. You want a meticulously done style of what they're doing. They're doing that. Mm-hmm. Like, they know their shit. It's, it's, it's a, a professorship, almost, of, mm-hmm. of beer crafting. Um, I just think New England kind of, like, throws a lot of shit at the table. And well, yeah. And misses. But, like, when they hit, like, they give you a wide plethora. And that's Sure. That's I, I, I don't disagree. When I, put, I put East Rock now over, over, like, counterweight. Well, yeah. East Rock is way better counterweight and this Counterweight's is good though this is not the beating up on counterweight thing but counterweight also makes like six beers that taste all roughly the same yeah they have the same like color they have the same kind of mouthfeel they have roughly the same taste they're kind of falling into that new england style ipa trap. well they're falling into that we need to have 30 beers trap and it's just like no don't make 30 beers just make 10 and make them really good speaking of which the blackberry gose is now sold out good bre- they have to brew they're brewing more mm-hmm and the it was so popular that they are going to bottle it. Oh, good. 
That's a problem. <laughs> the lemon goes is a problem for me too. It's gonna have. It's gonna be like right now in my fridge. I just grocery shopped and I have a bunch of like fruits and vegetables and a couple of meats and dairy. And it's nope. an impressive array, folks. Nope. Now it's gonna be lemon goes, blackberry Black goes. goes, maybe maybe less fruits. Yeah. Maybe a couple less fruits. Some some There's less some meat. Spinach. Yeah. And a block of cheese, and that's gonna be that's gonna be my diet for the next. 13 months that I live before I die. Baguettes and cheese. My body just imploding. The French prisoner diet. There you go. <laughs> um, the lobster. Everyone, you know, like lobster used to be like the prisoner's food. Was it? true? I don't know. No, no, I that hear that. Sense. I've heard that before. Do they give them the butter? Probably not. Were they issued bibs? How were they giving it to them? Did they have to break it apart themselves? Yeah. Or was it like already... You think they... Shelled or imagine, or you know, I mean, if this is olden days, they probably just gave them the cooked lobster and was like, figure it out. And they're just like, oh, okay. And then they broke it, and the green stuff came out, and they're like, oh no, <laughs> what is this? And then they just use the claws to stab the guards. It's a monster. Um, so speaking of olden days, this week's new film that I saw, I'll do a quick review on my uh, on my own, and before me and Mario start talking about rambling about something else. Um, this is 2019. Um, written and directed by Lynn Shelton, um, also written by Mike O'Brien. It is the independent film Sword of Trust. What you are looking at yes. is a genuine relic that supports the actual truth, which is the South mm-hmm. won the war. Okay. The South won the war? That's right. This is something it's, you want to keep under your hat till you're ready to Seems like pretty big news. The best way to do this is through concrete evidence. Is this antique roadshow for racists? Up to $50,000. God damn it. In Sword of Trust, Mark Marin plays Mal. He's a pawn shop owner. And he is confronted by Jillian Bell's Cynthia and Michaela Watkins' Mary. They have acquired a... A Civil War era sword, a Union sword, that uh, some documents that they have found accompanying the sword that was Cynthia's grandfather's, that belonged to Cynthia's uh, grandfather, may prove that the South actually won the the Civil War. Um, They enlist the services of somebody who um, buys um, proof items uh to to they to sell it to him um he's collecting things that prove that you know uh again the the north lost to the south and this sword was a was a part of that process it was surrendered over to general e lee um there's a there's a painting like a drawing that that accompanies this is some documents and like a really weird letter um it's uh a fairly light movie uh, it's not even 90 minutes. Um, most of it was improvised. A lot of the music in it is uh, Mark Marin's in-between guitar music for from his podcast WTF. Like between the intro and the in the actual conversation, he'll often like have some guitar music playing, and and Lynn Shelton just kind of used it as a placeholder um, when they were when she was putting it together. Just forgot to replace it, and then she just was like, "Well, this really works. We're just gonna leave. We're just gonna leave it because this is a lot of old blues stuff." Um, just kind of followed the same sort of mumble core kind of it's a, it's it's different because it's everything's brighter so it it, it is the mumble core thing in the sense that like nothing 
like some things happen, but nothing really happens. You I mean, know what Luchowski's I mean? got brighter, but he's also got more scripted and less mumblecore. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but this is the same kind of thing in the sense that it's most of it takes place in like two settings. Um, clearly, you know, there's a pawn shop, and then there's a house at the end, which I'm assuming is somebody's house. There's they don't show any part of the house; it's just like the one room of the house. Um, there's a truck scene when they like the four main characters take a ride in a truck where they're being, you know, uh, squirreled away to the this truthers, this Civil War truthers house, so they could sell the sword for forty thousand um, dollars. And but that's like a twenty minute scene that's in a truck, and they're just talking about their lives, and they kind of divulge, you know, a lot of their character stuff. A lot of the character development's done in this carpeted box truck that they're hanging out in. You know what I mean? So it's just like three locations. It's easy. The camera work's not doing anything really significant. Um, I would be interested to know what you think, though, when you get a chance to see it, because I think it's a little more complicated than it lets on. It goes into... Because, obviously, because of, like, the, you know, Civil War truth or stuff, there's some Flat Earth stuff mentioned. There's... Um, some talk about just the general idea of accepting the things that you have been told and kind of rethinking them. Um, there's a lot of stuff in here about kind of displacement or um, nativism in the sense that all most of these three of the four main characters seem to kind of come, they come from someplace else or they don't specific, they're not specifically Southern. Um, kind of what makes a person a, a, a person is it like where they come from or is it like, you know, who their parents were, or is it, like, the things they believe, or is it the things they kind of choose not to believe? Um, all of this stuff is wrapped up in a very neat, tidy, moderately humorous, but very well worth, like, the $6 it costs to rent it. Um, in the hour and 27 minutes, it's going to cost you um, to see it. Um, so, you know, when you get a chance, Mario, definitely see it. But this brings up another point that I wanted to make, um, and I, I, it kind of started, it started, I was listening to The Ringer today, to their big picture podcast, and they were just kind of talking about all these movies that, like, might be Oscar contenders, but, like, haven't come out yet, and he was listing all these movies, and I was like, I don't, I only know what, like, two of those movies are, and, like, he admitted, like, some of these movies might not even come out this year, and then coinciding with that, like, Rotten Tomatoes released a list today of, like, 20 movies you may haven't seen, you probably haven't seen yet. For the year. For the year so far, and I, I think I'd heard of one of them, maybe two of them. I think you saw one of them. Um, Is that? Uh, I'm, I'm guessing. Um, uh, I can't remember it now. The one on Netflix. Yeah, yeah. But like you know, there's all these movies that have like 97 percent on Rotten Tomatoes, 89 percent, like 92 percent, and I, I feel like I've heard of some of these, but like a lot of these aren't available to be seen. Um, like some of them are just coming out today. And you'd have to pay like $13 or whatever to see them. Um, I don't know what service most of these would be available on. I don't have a theater. We don't have a theater in our area that's going to play these things. Um, and on top of that, some of these may. Oh, yeah, The Burial of Kojo. Yeah, that's. Was, that's the, the, was the. You know, which has 100% on Rotten Tomatoes is, it's great, is on Netflix. It's a great movie. Um, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about this stuff anymore, especially you like dealing with my number 51. Um, like watching my number fifty one, like on a television, and the twenty most daring films of twenty nineteen, you probably missed. Yeah, you probably missed them, and you know, you most people probably did miss all of them or nineteen of them. Um, I don't know. There seems to be a kind of 
fracturing of and people have talked about this before i just want to know how you feel about it because i'm kind of it's kind of making me frustrated in the sense that like i feel like i need to see because of this podcast i feel like i need to see things um but i'm i know i'm not gonna see everything like i know i'm not gonna see half of the movies that richard brody reviews in the new yorker you know what i mean i'm not gonna see half of the movies that end up on like you know some fairly well-regarded film critics top 20 of the year list i'm just not gonna do it because i can't because i don't have enough money for one and like two i don't have a subscription to like every service in the world where this stuff is going to be available um i don't live in a major city and i i don't have time for this stuff and i imagine that they don't have time for this stuff either it's just like sit, they must just sit around all day at the end of the year and well, just mean, like watch movies. That's their job. When it's your job, you can. <laughs> but still, I mean, how many movies You're can a person, the time. whether it's your job or not, how many movies can a person possibly watch in a day to like watch all of these movies? I think Sean Fennessy on the big picture is like, oh, I've seen 168 movies this year. It's like, I know that's your job, but he writes too. He's like the managing editor or something at The Ringer. Like, is he really? I, mean, I, guess, I guess if you're watching, if you're, if you're watching. Five movies a week. I guess my question is: Are you really getting the? Ex- are, are you, you really getting, getting the like the experience of like being able to kind of watch a movie and sit with it and process it? If you're constantly on this like search for like the next weirdo movie that no one's gonna talk about, like I, the only reason I really was interested in sort of trust is because I'm like a diehard WTF listener, and Mark Maron talks about sort of trust. He's been talking about it every Monday and Thursday for like three months. Like, since it was coming out, and, like, then it came out, and then he was doing all this press for it. He's been talking about it all the time. If that wasn't the case... Has he been trying to ignore the fact that uh, that he did Joker as well? No, he was, he's addressed the Joker-like thing, and that it's he thought it was... Because he's very anti, like, superhero movie, and how it, this is, like, a real movie, and it's, like, old character study, and not, like, a superhero movie. It doesn't matter. Um... I don't know. I feel overwhelmed and I feel anxious. I actually, after, on Wednesdays, every Wednesday, after we record on Tuesdays now, every Wednesday I feel really weird. Because I'm just like, there's like 15 movies that we should probably be watching and talking about, and I'm not going to see any of them. Yeah, no, and that's, that's, that is the issue. Um, both of us are in school and are working, and you're doing both now. Um, and I got these freaking kids. Yeah, and those kids <laughs> don't want to watch, you know, Barry of Kojo. No, but they did. They did watch my fifty-one with me, which was nice. Oh, it, was that the first time they saw it? Yeah, no, they both enjoyed it thoroughly. They laughed at all the parts I was hoping they would laugh at. And there's like the issue with even some of the major films that have come out. I still haven't, you know, I just had a little trip, um, and you know, had just been packed busy. I still haven't seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. I still haven't... Neither of us has seen Farewell yet. These are movies that are readily available. Mm-hmm. Um, that does get frustrating. You kind of like... That's why I always kind of like, like at the end of the year when you get that list of like three different movie like sites giving you like the top 50 of the year. You kind of compare the bunch. Hmm. You know? And then, and then you kind of see like the movies of the year you have to watch. Like I... I like, in the year every year I go through an crazy cycle of like sure watching me too 80 movies but i think the part i think the problem now and it's like a blessing and a curse which is like a, the worst stupidest thing to say like our lists last year were fairly non-reflective i think of like uh, they were reflective of a lot of people's best of lists to an extent like if you amalgamated or if you aggregated like 13 or like 
I said 13. Like, you know, 20 people's lists. You'd probably be able to get most of the films that are on our list, like, on, on like, somebody's list. They would all be there. Um, but in terms of, like, the Oscars and, like, what, like, um, awards were given out and stuff like that, our lists were, were, were different. And they were very personal. And I was actually really proud of last year being able to say, like, these were my movies that I'm – a list I made irrespective of, like, everybody else's list that, you know, came out way before it. You know what I mean? Um, and I kind of want to do that same thing this year, which, and we got started so much earlier this year. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like last year, we didn't start doing this podcast until July, which means the first movie I saw um, with any intention of talking about on this podcast was Sorry to Bother You. You know, now we've already done eight months of seeing movies. You know what I mean? And But I'm already thinking like, you know, I we went to see The Secret Life of Pets 2 um, <laughs> last week. And I'm thinking of it like while I'm watching it, you know, and it's kind of funny, I guess. It's pretty lame. But I was also thinking, like, where does this rank? Where does this rank in the like, animated films? It's like, it's just well, stop trying to rank everything. Don't worry too, about is, it. Is like, as we see more movies, you know, year by year, the movies that I really enjoy sometimes, I just kind of forget about by the end of the year. Even if, like, they make a tier, fairly deep impact on me, or, mm-hmm. like, I, I really enjoy them. Like, Barry of Kojo, excellent piece of filmmaking, especially for the budget they had. But, mm-hmm. like... It, it when it doesn't re- have a remarkable touch on you personally, you know, you just have an intellectual appreciation for it. Uh-huh. It ends up being lost by yeah. the middle of the year. I, you know, I completely forgot about that, that movie. Lost my like was off my radar. You know, things like High Flying Bird or, um, I think uh, the Souvenir will stay in my head. But mm-hmm. but things you know, but Barrel of Kojo I think is a more expertly crafted film. Um, as an overall production than something like High Flying Bird, but it's, but when it doesn't have that emotional appeal, it kind of falls to the wayside. Yeah, and I guess the interesting thing is like as you see all these films and see more and more movies, um, you do kind of realize that a lot of things just don't stick anymore. Mm. It kind of makes you lose an appreciation for some of the finer points of the of the craft. Well, then there's an alternative to that too there's like a the converse is and I feel like I've been doing a lot of reflect like since we're hitting 51 and we're gonna do 50 next week um and then obviously 40, what? 49 it's, we're doing it's 50 over. next week yeah um oh god didn't expect that I've been kind happen. of reflecting on like the nature of this of this podcast and and you know what it's kind of turned me into as a movie watcher it's made me definitely a better movie watcher but it's also made me like a much more anxious movie watcher. So something like the two movies last year that I was kind of like, I really got it into my head that I had to see these movies. I had to see them. They were like the movies that I like. I had on a list that like were not checked off. And when they finally got released, I like scooped them up and probably paid way too much money to see them um, digitally. And that was like 1985 and um, what they had, the like Hillary Slank, Michael Shannon movie. And Michael Shannon is really excellent in it. Um, and Hillary Swank is, a, is good at it too. It doesn't really make any difference. Um, both of those movies were f- fine movies. They were not significant in any way. And But in my mind, I had built them up into the point where, like, I got to see them. I can't make... And I used to do that stuff with record reviews, too. Where, like, I would say, I can't make a best of, a best of list until I hear these records. And I would, like, build them up in my head. And then I'd watch, listen to them and be like, no, that was fine like i didn't need to do that i didn't need to do any of that and i felt like that last year like around when we were making our best of list and i kind of already feel that way this year like there's already a list i have of stuff i'm like i gotta watch this like how can i make a list without watching this like i don't know what this movie is no one's even talking about this movie why have i like worked uh like 
why have I worked so much stuff into this? To the point where, like, I said in the parking lot when we got here, like, you know, Casey Affleck wrote and directed, like, a post-apocalyptic movie um, that he stars in that just got, like, dropped on streaming randomly that I haven't seen one article or anything about. I haven't even seen it on Rotten Tomatoes. Like a, like a Rotten Tomatoes no, score for it. I didn't even it. know he had done it. Right. And it just is there. And I'm just like, what the hell is this? Like, where is this coming from? And now, what am I supposed to do with it? Like, it becomes especially troubling, I think, in the age of, like, the quasi-age of streaming where, you know, a lot of di- talented directors are getting thrown a ton of money to do whatever they want for the content. Mm. Um, and so they produce films that should be highly anticipated or that make you really eager to see them. And then they end up being pretty mediocre or forgettable. Well, like what a land... Velvet Buzzsaw or yeah. Hold the Dark. Or know? Land of Steady Habits. Yeah. All we three were films. so psyched up for those three movies. and then was like, All three of them were just mediocre to bad. Yeah. Um, and, but it's because, you know, there, there is the, it is almost as though, um, degrees of oversight, uh, or, um, you know, the, the struggle to make something adds to the quality of film, mm. you know. Um, and we're going to talk about a director later who, uh, who, despite his creations, you know, in early in his career, struggled for two decades to get his work funded because it didn't make a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And then it had, like, a revitalization of his career near the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and you wonder to the degree of, if a director like that had been thrown a ton of money, well, he was a bad example. He just would have kept making masterpieces. He would have been like, really? Yeah. <laughs> like, you sure about this? Can I have all the extras? <laughs> what do you mean? Like, all of them. Yeah. Everyone. Which, like, you, as a matter of fact, are going to stand over there. <laughs> I have the perfect place for you. My shot is perfectly composed for your face <laughs> in the background. <laughs> um, but it, it kind of limits the excitement. You know, like, there would have been a time where another Scorsese gangster movie would have had me pretty stoked. I'm now, so frustrated that like I don't care about this movie at all. Yeah. I'm mad that it's even coming out because <laughs> I have to watch it and it's free. Because yeah, I already I mean, pay, I mean, it's not free, but like I already pay for Netflix. Like so, it's just going to be there. So it's like, like you're paying far less than you would on a movie ticket. Right. There's no way that I'm not going to watch it, but it sucks that I have to watch it. Yeah. Because <laughs> I don't and trust you, that it's going to be any good. good. You hope it's you know, even though I'm not the biggest fan of um, Roma. Like, at least Roma is still, like, holding up to, to Queron, you know. Um, mm. It's it's still, like, it, it, you hope for a I wish Roma. I, w- I wish I would have seen it now in theaters, but that's, like, yeah, exactly. a different thing. You're hoping for an experience like that, but with what you've seen before, you can't even be sure of that, you know. And it's, it's when there's so much availability of content and there's so many people offering a ridiculous amount of money or buying any film you know that that mm-hmm. partially sparks interest for three to four million dollars or 12 million dollars i mean in the case of like late night yeah which man which <laughs> talk, talk about <laughs> which fucking misspent. yeah um and you build that sort of anticipation and excitement and ends up just flatlining mm-hmm. it, it ruins the excitement you know it, it, and and that's sometimes why like the, these lists of like these Rotten Tomatoes lists are good because there's movies I wouldn't like Barry of Kojo I saw only because it was on the, the top films of the first third of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, but these, these major projects that kind of 
end up popping out just to just ruin the excitement for it because because mm. they're they're done without sort of the risk involved to the filmmaker um and oversight and and to another degree they just overwhelm small projects that are getting bought for nothing that actually are doing things that would be you know propelled further to the foreground if it wasn't for um you know these other movies being bought like like look at like compare this to you know marriage story coming out this year you know noah bombeck like he's who knows what he's burying you know that in the sense that like in 2005 Squid and the Whale might have been buried by some, or kicking and screaming, like, ten years earlier, might have been yeah. buried by something if, if you know, there had been a Noah Baumbach getting financed to buy a multi-billion dollar conglomerate. Well, and that, is that a Netflix movie? That's gonna, yeah, Marriage Story is Netflix. Well, that's the thing, like, I guess it's, I guess you sell it. Well, there, it's, I mean, it's, it's going to be on Netflix. It's I don't Kylo, know if it's, it's, I don't know if he bought, he bought, if it was bought, or, I think it's being. No, I think he's though. got a deal. Yeah. Because the Meyerowitz story is yeah, on Netflix, yeah, exactly. so I think he's got a deal. But like, I guess you can sell it like Kylo Ren and Black Widow are going to be in a movie together. That's supposed to be like a modern take on an Oscar-winning like idea in Kramer versus Kramer. But like, I don't know. Like, is that going to is Netflix the right place for that movie? And like, I'm kind of. We had this discussion also a year ago about about the streaming thing. Did, Just, yeah, I feel like we did, but I feel like it's overwhelming me now. And like last year, I didn't care because it was new to me. And like I didn't give a shit about it until we started doing the podcast, and then we started doing the podcast. It's like this is cool, and that's why. And now everything sucks. And that's why I like about Amazon's approach, um, in the fact that they're still like releasing these films to theaters first, yeah, letting them kind of sink or swim there, and then um, you know, and then either just dumping it on Amazon Prime, or as I call it, beautiful bullying it, um, or yeah. you know, they are, you know, making it a focal point like Manchester by the Sea. Um, I think that's kind of the right approach. I think I think still the 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 demanding some sort of quality control is is the right way. I just to think go. I've I that's that, and I'm frustrated by the content dump, like where it's just kind of like, oh, this is a thing. And it's like, when when did that become a thing? Like I don't know anything about it, and and I'm not saying like, oh, in the old days, like there used to be press for everything, but there was just less opportunities for someone to do something like that, and so it just didn't happen. Yeah, and, and next year by next year, you're gonna have what three major well i guess amazon prime once again movies are released first in in cinemas but you know you're going to have now two major content providers mm-hmm. and you'll have to have their streaming service in order to legally see their films assuming disney plus actually tries to make smaller movies which i don't care i'm not gonna get disney plus anyway so no yeah but i kind of doubt they're gonna do smaller films anyway stop making john favreau content and maybe i'll enjoy your <laughs> streaming service They'll make, um, they'll make some indie films starring Jeremy Renner. That's what that's they are. That's <laughs> the Hawkeye booth show is going to be. It's just, little do people know it's Taylor Sheridan written and directed. <laughs> um, all right. So, you know, it just was something that was bugging me as we kind of roll into the, the midway point of this this thing is that I just feel I'm like buried. But next week we will have reviews of, of Farewell and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood finally. So yeah. if, if you are angry we didn't have another discussion about a film well maybe it'll be a rational discussion unlike everyone else who like started dumping on it like as soon as it came out saying it's either the best thing he ever made or the worst thing he ever made or like a real night or 2019 problem or why isn't aquafina in this film too there's maybe there should have been a place for it maybe that's a that's you know that'll be our question let's get that online our discussion will be where does aquafina fit in this Mm -hmm. um all right we will be right back with our 51s (laughs) 
Welcome back. Um, I'm going to do one of your lead-ins. Uh-oh. The year, I believe, is early 1993, Mario. I'm in a Bradley's in West Haven. Do you guys it's have a bookstore? Do you guys have Bradley's on the West Coast? That bookstore? It's like a department store. Oh, no, we didn't have that shit. Okay. You didn't have department stores? You guys are too good for department stores? Or just too, too rural. Cows would have just walked through them. Is this for sale? Um, Get out of here, cow. Can't be in here. <laughs> it's racist. It's racism. Speciest. Um, I was in Bradley's with my mom. I turned around. And there was a rack of books, Mario. It was all black. Except for a little yellow outline. A little red there in a circle. And in that circle was a, was a T-Rex skeleton. And I said... Not completely a T-Rex skeleton. No, because the T-Rex T-Rex doesn't have those little uh, horns on the back of their body. It's like a vertebrae, I think. It just goes up a little too high. The vertebrae starts like in his brain stem, which might be it's appropriate. Um, It was a book. It was 11. And I said, I must have this book. And I went home and I read the ever-loving Christ out of this book. And it, I knew it was going to be a movie, because it was the movie cover, and it said it on the book, and that was going to be a movie. And that movie was the 1993 Steven Spielberg film, Jurassic Park. There it is. Welcome to Jurassic Park. We've made living biological attractions so astounding that they'll capture the imagination of the entire planet. The most phenomenal discovery of our time. How'd you do this? Becomes the greatest adventure of all time. I don't really have a great memory from my childhood. I don't remember going to the movies a lot during my childhood. I have a vague recollection of standing in line um, for the original Michael Keaton, Tim Burton, Batman. Um... One must have been like seven. Um, I have some recollections of going to see Ninja Turtles 2 in a place called Milford Pub and Cinema, um, which was, you know, a pub and also a cinema where you could sit in like lounge chairs and smoke and people would bring food to you. Um, I have a recollection of going to see um, Cop and a Half. Remember Cop and a Half? (laughs) Yeah, I do. And then getting there too early for Cop and a Half and then going to see Ninja Turtles 3 instead because we were way too early and they let us go see Ninja Turtles 3 for free. There's a lot of Ninja Turtles watching when I was a kid. Um, these things aren't in chronological order. They're just film. They're movie memories that I have of going to movies. There is not a lot of them. Um, but I have a vivid, vivid, vivid memory of going to see Jurassic Park for the first time. Um, specifically because I knew what was going to happen. And I was vaguely terrified of what was going to happen in that movie, specifically regarding Dennis Nedry and getting his guts eaten by the Dilophosaurus, as described as only Michael Crichton <laughs> can describe something. Were you really confused when John Hammond wasn't a complete asshole? Um, I, I, it's funny, I was not. I actually have no problems with any of the changes they made no, from I don't the, either. the book to the movie. Um, I actually think the movie works way better in a lot of ways than the than the book does um i think the book's an enjoyable read now um 
because it's you know it's a little more complicated. There's a little more weight to stuff. Um, but the movie is the movie is surpassed the book, you know, tenfold. Um, it was kind of um, was a mind blower. It was a game changer. As, uh, you know, as its placement on this list can will show you. We are at the pivot point of my list now. Fifty and fifty one are like the synchro. They're the two, the two points where these two lists meet. Um, and I kind of did that on purpose, but it also kind of worked out perfectly. I think. Um, it's funny because I watched it again. Obviously, to do this list, I watched it with my kids, and um, you know they they really liked it. They didn't care about any of the you know the supposed deaths. They're actually kind of mad they didn't get to see Dennis Nedry um, get eaten. Because it bugged them that like they didn't get to see it, and they're like, "Oh, I bet he's still alive. I bet something's gonna happen with him later." I was like, "No, he's dead." I was like, "In 1993, Steven Spielberg movies, when a dinosaur is in a car with a guy, and then the car is they, sh- you know, cut pull back to like a medium shot of that car on a hill, and it's shaking and someone's screaming. That guy's dead. They're not gonna re go into the car to show you the dinosaur eating that guy, even though I think, I think they really wanted, they yeah. really wanted that." Um, should, you should show them Carnivore after this. Carnosaur? Carnosaur, yeah. Carnosaur, yeah. sorry. No, I should. Um, I actually almost went to see Carnosaur oh. because I thought it was just going to be... I think I could convince my parents that it was just like another Jurassic Park type movie, but they didn't let me go, which is fine. Um, but yeah, so a couple of things happened after I saw Jurassic Park, and I, you know, I loved, I loved it. Um, and because I loved it, um, I then read all the Michael Crichton books. And because I love Jurassic Park so much, I obviously got the Jurassic Park Sega video game, and I, which I just watched a complete um, walkthrough of on YouTube the other day. Um, I got all the Jurassic Park action figures. There was Jurassic Park, um, you know, T-shirt stuff, and there was Jurassic Park trading cards. And we even went to Florida right around the time when they opened the Jurassic Park ride at Universal. Which I waited like an hour and a half to ride, which ended up just being a flume ride with um, fairly lame but cool uh, animatronic dinosaur effects. But contained within all of this stuff, I recognized um, I recognized two things. One is that I didn't take anything, I didn't take any aspect of Jurassic Park with me from 1993 to now. When I watch it, it is all nostalgia. It is just a festival of nostalgia, just like welling up inside of me. And I'm not saying, I'm saying a lot to myself, like this movie ends like too abruptly or like, why are everyone making these decisions? Or like, why would he even invite these people? Like, you know, pointing out plot holes and things like that, which Steven Spielberg didn't give a shit about because he was just making the most fun movie ever, which it still is. It's still one of, like, it's still the great popcorn movie experience as far as I'm concerned. That first time you see that Brachiosaurus, like, in that music swell, that, you know, the rare, great John Williams theme, like, comes on. Um, It's just kind of overwhelming, and it's still kind of overwhelming. You know what I mean? Um, But the other thing I can see now in post-Jurassic Park is that there is a there is I didn't take anything from Jurassic Park with me, but I took some of my response to Jurassic Park with me, and it's something that like I was I maintained and perfected throughout the rest of my life, which is this kind of like search for identity through art. So I just bought the shit out of Michael Crichton, Jurassic Park, like they were my things. That was what I did. I only read Michael Crichton books for I don't know how long until I read all of them, even 
like up into like a case of need his very first novel which is just a terrible terrible novel um And then getting all the Jurassic Park stuff, but this is stuff that like I would see kind of afterwards. So like when Tommy Boy, when I first saw Tommy Boy, I was like, yeah, I'm like Chris Farley. You know what I mean? Like I'm kind of like this guy. Um, something similar happened to me with like the Big Lebowski and me and all my friends. We were just, we I think we thought we were Walter and the dude. You know what I mean? And like we all drank white Russians and we all thought we were super cool guys and we all wanted to get fine jellies that would fit our teenage feet. You know what I mean? Um and then uh, we, we'll talk about that more later and we'll talk about it with another movie too where like it over – that was another pivot point and that goes back to like the 1999 things that we were talking about. There are these pivot points in my life where these things kind of define themselves for me and I can see it and I can track it. And that's what the interesting thing about doing this podcast is like the movie kind of allows me to, to track those things. You know what I mean? Like Jurassic Park is a very clear one for me. I have a very clear memory of – turning around and seeing that fucking bank of things. Just like I have a very clear memory. I had a lot of 93 book experiences, like overwhelming book experiences, like in the same store later in the year, seeing a huge rack of Stephen King's short story collection of Nightmare and, and Dreamscapes to where it's just like all I wanted in my whole life was a copy of that book. And I feel like I've talked about this on the podcast before. Like it was all I wanted for years was a hardcover copy of Nightmares and Dreamscapes. The kicker is that Nightmares and Dreamscapes is a pretty crummy book. It's got pretty crummy stories in it. Um, like pretty crummy Stephen King coming down off of being a drunk and a coke addict for like however many years. Him just kind of writing the shit out of everything. Um, but I have sense memories of like wanting it and feeling like those things, not wanting them because I, um, you know, I just wanted it and I was a kid and I wanted to, but feeling like those things were going to be significant, that there was like secrets inside of there, like that this cover contained secrets of that I needed to know. Um, it doesn't contain any secrets. Contains a very heroic lawyer. <laughs> I, hate to, I hate to break it to you. Yeah, it does. But it does not contain any secrets. Um, but that's but fifty one and fifty are gonna conf, are gonna conflict because one of them I'm one of them I didn't take with me as a piece of art. I took with me some of the ideas surrounding myself surrounding the piece of art, and the other one came with me and is still just like hanging out like right here with me and has kind of defined my viewing of art um, in a new way post Jurassic Park. You also have Jurassic Park on your list. It's, we're going to talk about it in, you know... Two months. Two months or so. Um, so I'm not going to say very much about the product in and of itself. I will say this, though. And I'm interested to get your opinion on it. Um, I was not one of those people... I'm not like a Brett Easton Ellis person in the sense that, like, oh, movies are meant to be seen on the big screen. I've had fairly enjoyable and profound experiences with films on my television. Um, but watching Jurassic Park back again... It looks really fucking strange on a TV. Like, even not just the dinosaur parts. It's actually not the dinosaur parts. It's the other parts that were shot for, a, like, a movie screen. Even just, like, any scene Jeff Goldblum is in is, you could tell, like, with all that backlighting and stuff that, you know, Steven Spielberg does. Jeff, just Jeff Goldblum sitting there and him pushing in on him. There's a lot while of tight, like, medium shots yeah. throughout this. All, but all that stuff is designed for that the big a screen. bigness to it that's kind of And it's just weirdly... a guy sitting there. Yeah, no. I, I think this is a, a uh, endemic of kind of 
the mid '90s in general. Mm-hmm. I think another Gold Bloom film, Independence Day. Yeah, is really similar in the fact that like really close personal shots are composed in such a way that. It becomes awkwardly personal mm-hmm. uh, watching on a small screen, but on a big screen, it just gets this larger-than-life sense. These characters are not just people. They are larger-than-life figures of um, ideas or, or personalities. And personalities, in the flattest sense of the term, you know, they, they all kind of contain one emotional keel yeah. uh, completely, but, but they are that you know they they have a grandioseness to well, that to the one spectacle sense. yeah exactly so it's not just moving from like set piece to non-set piece to set piece to non-set piece the whole thing is big you know what i mean like the whole fucking thing yeah no like you see it doesn't you know even a scene like alan grant torturing that kid has a oh a, i know a power yeah. a hugeness a bigness to it um now you don't see with like Owen in Jurassic World that you know it's those characters are smaller mm-hmm. and more contained within the special effects um, leading to those set pieces but this does have a weirdness where those scenes don't feel right watching on a smaller screen no. I mean their work they're still they're good still fu- good it's movie. so great but it's it, it, it but I think I think this um, Indiana Jones another you know another one that mm-hmm. just they don't I first saw Indiana Jones in the small screen. It's like I really like on a television. I really enjoyed it. Then I went to go see it in a theater later on, mm-hmm. and I was like, oh, "Okay, now I get yeah. it." Um, and it's like when I went to see, and it's different. It's way different. When I went to see the Lost, not the Lost World, um, Jurassic World, I got super pumped up because it was like, "Oh, the dinosaurs are back on the big screen!" Like, yes, thank you for giving me dinosaurs back on a big screen. But it doesn't look the same. You know what I mean? They're not doing anything the same. Everything's shot, like, so it formats well for, like, a new modern television. Um, Back in 1993, Steven Spielberg didn't give a shit if it was formatted for your television. It was formatted to make $914 million and be the highest grossing film of all time. There was no way it was was going to, those movies would ever be filmed for a television because the television was a square brick. Yeah. Or a really shitty backlit. plastic screen you know mm-hmm. they, they there was no way to create you know most of these movies were then turned into full screen but it's it's projects it's, it's funny um, when i'm talking we had that conversation when before. released on vhs yeah well <laughs> or like yeah the multiple versions the letterbox and the you know television or whatever it was or the regular format it's just funny because steven spielberg is one of those guys that was coming out and being like oh netflix you know movies on netflix are are bad like we shouldn't be doing this we should be focusing on the on the big screen and like you know Brady's Nellis and a bunch of those like you know aesthetics persons have kind of been saying the same thing like all this it's a it's a problematic viewing experience like I want the bigness I want I go to the movies to have the palace experience and the kind of like I did in 1993 um what? and it's it's just weird because like this is the first time I've recognized like this is a problematic movie on my television yeah. Like, it's not, it didn't translate. You know, your number 51 is, like, another example. I obviously didn't see that one on a, on a big screen. It was, but it was re-released in early 2000s. Yeah, like, see, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't get there, but. You didn't have I 202 minutes to spare? I didn't have 202 minutes to spare. Um, but this, it, I, that's designed for, to, like, to press itself down onto you, like, through all of your senses, it's the reason, not just yeah. this kind of like tunnel vision well, right in front of you. You know, like David Lean pictures are kind of the same way. Like I, I wouldn't, 
you know, I didn't go see Lawrence of Arabia until like four years ago because I refused to see it until I could see it on a, uh-huh. on a big screen because those films aren't cre- created for television. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I disagree kind of with, with Spielberg and kind sure. of the, the, the originalist now because I think a lot of films, most all films now, work on both formats. Like, I, Roma's fine on a TV. But I think Roma would have been... It would have been better, better on a big screen, but it, it doesn't lose anything on a television. No, I get it. It's the thing. I get it. There's the subtext of Roma, which I like. I object to more so than like the pictures. Yeah, and I, I don't think films are made anymore as events. Like Even looking at something like Avengers Endgame, you could look at that and go, like, I can watch this on TV, and it'll be the exact same experience. Yeah. Because they're all, they're all made for like that... You know, like television can so well replicate kind of theater experience in terms of dimensionality of um but it's also so film. it's and, also so digital now like yeah. everything's especially if you're making like a movie if you're shooting it on digital it's going to look digital on a digital projector or on your HDTV you know what i mean like you're not it's yeah and that's the reason why I, that's the reason why i even mentioned like independence day cuz independence day's so packed full of models. I mean, hmm. you know, famously when the Empire State Building explodes, it's a bunch of wood that flies out of the building. <laughs> yeah, the Empire State Building was apparently made out of balsa wood. Uh, if you watch Independence, but it looks big. You know, it looks big. It, it I looks, saw. It looks great on in the theater, and then when you saw it on the television, you're kind of like. I mean, that's another movie memory I have of seeing that at Grauman's Chinese Theater when we went out to Cal. Me and my family went out to California. And like I, I remember that one of my saddest experiences was the first time I ever heard of a sold out movie was Independence Day. Went to go see it opening day, and mm-hmm. it was sold out, and I was like, "What?" In a small little cow town uh-huh. in northern Nevada, so we had to go back the next day. Were there, the cows were in the theater too, just like they were in the department they're, they're stores. They're everywhere. Cows are everywhere. <laughs> Building walls in the wrong places. You build walls around the cows. Yeah, they have those. They're called industrial farms. Good. I'm all for that. Thank you, Monsanto. <laughs> Um, but no, I, I agree. Like it, it, it's still a great movie to watch on television, but it's not the same. No, you it's know, just... it doesn't. It doesn't have this sense of scale. It doesn't have this sense mm-hmm. of making you feel not small, but in sense of like encompassing you. Like you yeah. are so overwhelmed by Jurassic Park by every part it, of it. Yeah, that you feel like you're there. Yeah, you know, I don't want to say there. That feels you feel as though you are. But you're so wholly invested in it. And you feel even, like... Even like when they go to the mines to get the ember. Like you're yeah, yeah, there. Yeah. And it's just a nothing scene. Well, and, you're, and you just feel like you're watching like... And this is going to sound... Yeah, I don't want it to sound like a stereotype. It's like you feel like you're watching a movie. Like you feel like it's doing all the things that like movies were designed to do. Which is to transport you. Like to make you have an experience that to you give couldn't you two have hours somewhere out else. Of the heat. To give you two hours out of the heat. Because yeah. the air conditioning is so re- expensive. That's what Watch Don Jolinger get shot outside. That's what movies are designed for, yeah. <laughs> to give you to give you the place to be where Don Jolinger gets shot. <laughs> um, but yeah, so no, we'll, 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 we'll hold, talk, we'll talk about off. this more yeah. uh, in depth in in a while. We'll talk about the the slipping occasionally of Sam Neill's accent. Just no, my, it's fine. Which is my favorite. Samuel's always allowed to have his accent slip. He does it in the mouth of madness even worse. I just love it. I love when the Australian just comes back. And it's just like, wait, what? Huh? And Laura Dern's just so happy she's not in a oh, David Lynch film. Laura Dern. 
Yeah. She was like 26 in that, too, isn't she? She was great in that. All right. We will be right back with Mario's number 51. We've had several discussions on this podcast about what television shows we like. I None. am 100% a plot-driven guy, as we've talked about. We, I think we've mentioned Barry a couple times. I'm a big fan of Barry. And you said you tried to get into it because you weren't a plot guy. Yeah. We just, me and my wife started watching it like proper this weekend. And all the same things happen to me that happen to me whenever I try to watch a plot-driven show. I just want to stop watching it instantaneously. I know it makes me a bad person. No, it doesn't make you a bad person. It makes you a goddamn weirdo. It doesn't make you a bad person. <laughs> but for me, the essence of, of anything that I want to just invest myself in is story. Mm-hmm. Is the natural growth of a beginning, a middle, and an end narrative. I've also made it quite known in this podcast that I am an absolute fan of action, of perfectly crafted action, mm-hmm. and of somebody, people, directors, filmmakers, writers, who have an undoubtedly cannibalistic nature to how well they can consume their own work, to how well they can just bleed onto thank you bleed onto the film uh-huh these are all these are all true statements and this for me number 51 is just the ultimate example of of that the ultimate example of of tightly crafted plot despite how expansive of a running time mm. of the ultimate beginning of modern action and how modern action would then be, you know, the, the, the stereotypes and the, the cliches and tropes of action would rise from. Um, it's often considered one of the most remade, reworked, and referenced films of all time. I think I, I agree with that, and I don't think it's like one of the. I think it's probably, I think it's, it's got to be the. Yeah, when a Pixar movie remakes itself. When I was even thinking of, I was thinking of different movies, and they when I was watching it again. But continue. You're thinking of Galaxy Quest. No, I was thinking of all those like, um, all those Civil War movies that came out, like you know, in the early '90s, and then like the early 2000s. Like Gettysburg. Like Gettysburg and Gods and Generals and all that stuff is just them making this movie over and over. (laughs) Um, And. You know, having talked about directors, my two most influential directors in terms of being on the pivotal list, I think this filmmaker, far and away, is probably the one me and you both might agree had just undoubted control of. He's a genius. Film. He's yeah. an unquestioned genius. Anyone who says he's, he's one not of those, is insane. He's one of those people that you would want to like, if you you know, if you knew you could save keep him alive for 10 years by like giving like a quarter of your own blood mm. he would have done it probably because whatever he would have done with that time would have been amazing if he could have got the funding i mean actually, if he could have got the funding he, he would have he could have got the blood he might not have been able to get the money nowadays he would have 
You think so? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah he... Netflix would give him $50 million every year. <laughs> and he would have won an Oscar making, every year. What do you make it this year? I don't know. Nothing. Here's $50 million. I'm collecting extras. <laughs> yeah. Um, this film is Akira Kurosawa's 1954 Seven Samurai. あるサンカンの小さな村に侍の墓が4つ並んだ。野心と巧妙に疲れた狂気の時代に全く名利を顧み哀れな百姓たちのために戦った7人の侍の話。Bandits have descended upon a small mountain village. Has they been raiding the countryside? And decide they're gonna wait on this one for the barley harvest. Mm. Wait till the the pickin's good, as it were. They are overheard by a farmer, who then goes to the village elder and miller, Gasuku. No matter how many times I've seen this movie, I still can't do the names. I'm not gonna do the. I'm not gonna do it for the rest of the rest of this episode. It's fine. <laughs> The fact that I could say Akira Kurosawa properly is, is a surprise. Uh-huh. And the elder decides that the um, that he had once seen a village hire samurai and that those had been untouched. And so he sets out to find hungry samurai. The scouting group eventually sees um, an aging, an older, but incredibly crafty and genius samurai. And asks for his help. Eventually, he recruits six other samurai from a ragtag. No, nah, not necessarily ragtag. From a one of them's ragtag, mm. but from a, a group of of collected personalities, and they create a plan to prevent the bandits from raiding the village. Mm-hmm. And for the most part, successful. Well, pretty most mostly successful. What is that like? 62 percent, 62 percent failure, I and mean, they think it's gonna be a suicide mission for the most part. So it's like a hundred percent success for who? Like, for like for the village, for like the for like the village. Yeah, but a, like the thirty, there's like thirty percent of them, thirty percent of the samurai make it. But they don't matter, as no. we learn in like the second to last line of the movie. Yeah, the we lost the battle too. Kira Kurosawa is. Just one of those people for me who who is an ultimate storyteller. You know, we have he let me borrow his book, something like an autobiography, like an autobiography, mm-hmm. and the man can make the most boring parts of his life enthralling. Mm-hmm. Walking to school in old wooden shoes, that kind watching of... a dog be cleanly cut in half, thinking that maybe his nurse used to go. To the restroom with him still by his side. He knows how to craft a story. And this is an example of a film that crafts its story both visually and in terms of the writing. And I don't know, I don't want to get too much into this. In, in the sense of there is 
such prolific writing on Seven Samurai that I think anything we could say or add into it would just be kind of repeating it. Um, um, yeah, I mean, I don't, the script so, the script seems like a, a, almost like a Greek play in the sense that like it's just kind of existed forever. Yeah, like it, what the, else the would first, anybody say? The first to draft was over apparently five hundred pages, but they wrote it in six weeks. Yeah, they, I mean, they didn't do anything else but this for they six weeks. Really, but... he really pissed off Toho when he decided to have his budget go four times. Well, that's just over. And they're like, guys, we're Toho was like, we're making fucking Godzilla right now. You can't be doing this to us, Kurosawa. And he's just like, I'm going fishing. I'm going fishing. I made most of this film anyway. You're gonna give me the money. But the thing for me that that is is impressive about this film is for such for as enthralling of an action film it is, it is so quaint in mm-hmm. in a lot of what it does. You know, you, you see the the implementation of film techniques that are then used far later in, in more action films. You know, when you're first introduced um, to Kambi, uh, you know, when he shaves off his head and goes into the hut to mm-hmm. rescue the child, you know, you see the slow motion death scene, off-screen violence. Um, and each death in this film, like each, even the bandit's death, are kind of are composed in such a way that, you know, they are themselves a story. Um, I was watching a, I believe it's one of those every frame of painting episodes where, mm. um, was it that one or is it a different episode? I saw, watched a lot of YouTube videos about this. Some YouTube video about this. And he, they made a, a great point of, as you see each bandit die, Kurosawa takes the point of opening the shot where you're going to see the bandit fall. Yeah. You see the bandit fall and die. Mm-hmm. You know, each death has impact. It, you know, it's it's action. It's still it's still fervent. It's still you know furious. It it still moves at a great pace, but everything has a punch. Every single moment of violence has some sort of consequence. It has mm-hmm. a beginning, a middle, and an end. Each bandit's death, despite how despicable they may be, has weight and gravity to it. Well, so, I mean, the weight of gravity. I mean, uh, the genius and I've been reading a lot of. Um... I feel like I, we talked about this last week too. I've been reading all these like literature craft books, and one of the things they, they you know talk about the conti- the kind of um, the continuation and the the referencing of motifs in, in in literature. And I think like a great piece of literature, he kind of brings things. He continually brings things back. So the film technique adds weight to the deaths because each death kind of gets their own thing. It's almost like you can count them. There is a weight there because they are counting them. They are literally crossing off crossing circles off. on their map, yeah. like as they take each one of these things down. So you can literally see how close and how far away these people are from having their their freedom um, and their sovereignty returned to them as each of these people like fall off of of their horse. Um, the other thing that I think is great about that is that a lot of that stuff was probably not even really done on purpose. I mean, he famously used like you know, two or three or four cameras and shot at all at the same time from different angles to just kind of get as much coverage as possible. Oh, well, well, great. And then just edited in what, like, worked for other stuff. And that's that's what that's what works so well, too. Like, he uses the telephoto lens. And, he you know, he famously always would tell his actors to kind of, like, contain one, to kind of do one thing, mm-hmm. to, to always kind of have one motion. 
um, so that the audience could identify mm-hmm. as he kind of edited those shots. I mean, it's still, the final battle scene is nine minutes long from flag to flag. You know, flag shot to flag shot, mm-hmm. bookmarked, and it has only 101 cuts in that. You know, compared to kind of a modern battle scene or even battle scenes that would take place later on, you'd get like three to four times that amount of cuts. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it seems like a lot because there's so Taken much Taken 3 had like on. seven cuts and jumping over a fence. Which, what did? The movie Taken 3. Uh, Liam Neeson jumps over a fence in eight cuts, seven well, or eight cuts, I think. So, like, when I was thinking about all these, when I was thinking about those those war movies, and, like, you can throw, like, shitty movie like The Patriot in, into there, too, but any kind of war movie like that. When there's chaos, or, like, Hacksaw Ridge um, is a perfect example of this. When there's chaos, it's 100% stage chaos. You know what I mean? Everyone is always making the perfect bayonet thrust they're making the perfect shot. Smoke is billowing around their head perfectly. They're falling down perfectly. Their post, you know, the recoil on their rifle reaction is perfect. There's a bunch of times in, like, this, in the whole thing, but the final battle sequence specifically, maybe not the final battle sequence with the mud, but maybe just, like, right before it starts raining and everything starts to kind of, like, go crazy when um, it's not Tashiro Mifun breaks his sword. You know what I mean? When, like, yeah. his sword's broken. I don't get the impression that his sword maybe was supposed... He, he puts all those swords out extra because he needs... You know, he can't just have one sword to kill five people at a time or something like that. And he says, his sword breaks. I also get the impression that maybe his sword wasn't supposed to break. It just broke. And he just keeps filming and he gets another sword. There's actual... It's actual chaos. It's... Con- he knows it's controlled, but we are not seeing the order there. We are seeing literally villagers trying desperately to kill these people on horses. Like, that's what we're seeing. Yeah, and when you see, like, I mean, you know he has control of his yeah, blocking. Yeah, 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 Especially, absolutely. like, you look at those later films, you know, Cage Musha, um, you know, even, like, prior, we've talked about Rashomon, you know you know he's blocking the shit out of these scenes. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, he, he will keep a shot to, you know, a, a mid-shot to a wide bring it to like an over-the-shoulder kind of shot in all one take because he's controlling the blocking. But that's true in the sense of, you know, whatever sort of chaos may be thrown into it or whatever sort of accident may be thrown into it or just the simple fact that he's using four to five cameras in one take Mm -hmm. using that telephoto lens so the actors don't know what to act to. So they have to act to everything. They have to do a full body sort of action and that oftentimes is imperfect. Um works more to add the authenticity which 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 is one of the things that i find like so compelling about this film is that it really does feel it's, it's it messy. feels so weirdly authentic it's just kind but of it's, bananas it's for how and this is what, what what impresses me too and what always struck me about it um you know just for has it's 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 amazing how interesting this film is for being 3 hours and 27 minutes how tightly he construct he constructed interesting characters and then builds up to certain moments of action and energy and then kind of quiets down and, and it feels like it's so perfect because mm-hmm. you know it yeah. is but it doesn't seem that way especially in that final battle scene like the, this man is literally showing you a map of, of the layout of the village yeah. so that you have a sense of where you're going to be uh-huh. because when that shit hits the fan and the things are so frantic and there is that much, that much energy, things do get kind of messy, mm-hmm. but they're so perfectly built up. 
the narrative has been so well done in terms of you know the, the visual experience and then and the story experience that that messiness or chaos now feels controlled and you know those shots are blocked those you know he, he knew what to plan out but you know, having those five cameras during that battle scene, having it take place in the middle of February and those actors freezing their asses off. I think yeah. one of the actors famously said it's like the coldest he's ever... Oh, I say famously said. One of the actors I said... I say that all the time. Um, you know, it was like the coldest he's ever been. Mm-hmm. I think it was the same actor going to write UFO books. <laughs> Maybe that's what caused it. I'm not yeah. sure if that's arms are right, but one of, the, one of the actors went on to write UFO books, mm-hmm. so I'm going I'm to imagine it, it looked uncomfortable being that cold. You know... And it feels, it looks miserable. You know, yeah. it looks, and that's what spoke, but it's supposed to be. You know, the fact that this film went over budget and went way over time and that they shot it in rain, you know, the, the energy of the rain and the mud and all that and the messiness of that in itself adds to the realism of it. And well, I think what also adds to the realism is that he's... And I really just kind of noticed this when I was watching it for this. So that last, when Shiro Mufun is, has that, like, I don't know if he's, like, the leader of the bandits, but the guy that runs into the, like, the house with, like, the women and children. Yeah, he's, like, like, at the, the, end. he's like the band leader. Who the gun? He, it's almost like in any other movie, that would be, like, the, like, the pivotal fight sequence. You know what I mean? It's, like, the hero that we were rooting for because he's a, he's a farmer and now he's a samurai and, like, He's got all these great kills, and he's do you know he's really attached to this. And he had this really profound psychological realization in the middle of a battle, which we can talk about. And he's gonna fight the he's gonna fight the leader, and he doesn't even show us that like in the room. He takes it's a panning shot like through the like slatted walls of the house until he pushes him out the door, and then he you know, you know stabbed. You know what I mean? And we don't even get to see like the stabbing. He just kind of comes out ready to be stabbed and then Mufun dies right there um but that's but that's part of it it's it's part of like the um ah like the really organic momentum that he's was able to create using all of these techniques so even though it does feel like three hours and 24 minutes or whatever it is or three hours and 27 whatever it is um it never is it's not ever boring because you feel like you're watching something really significant like you've and even though you may have seen all the movies that were inspired by this you've never it feels like you've never seen anything like this and you probably haven't because even the movies that copied this don't do it even kind of as good as this movie does um to the point where like you talked about the script before um you don't even really notice that each character kind of has their own personality. Personality, and that's—I mean—it's so amazing that he talks about that early in the movie, where it's not really about swordsmanship; it's about personality. He wants the right personalities that want to be in this village for like the right reasons that are going to, you know, take it seriously and um, aren't just at it looking for the, for glory or for riches. They're looking at for something deeper, and he's got this like ragtag team. But through the movie, he allows every single one of these people to kind of, like, the nature of their character to be um, more fully realized. So, like, you know, Tishere Mufun has his outbursts, and then he saves that baby, and that's, I, I mean, I, that fucking, this, it's me shot. Like, yeah. the whole scene, the it's me, this is me when I was a child, is just, 
is a game changer. You know what I mean? Like if you see that, that is that is shit is burning. You know what I mean? Like what's when that's happening for metaphorically and literally that shit is burning. But even like um, and I forget his name, the guy that's like a swordsman. That's you know that kills that guy. They're fighting with the the bamboo sticks at first, and then the guy's like Kuzo. What? Kuzo. It might be. I don't remember his name because he doesn't really do anything. Like he doesn't have like the most. He's not like the most ostentatious guy. You mm. know what I mean? He's not demonstrative in any way. But Kurosawa keeps giving him opportunities to go for that character to be deepened, and his character is deepened through his stoicism and his swordsmanship. Like the combined nature of those two things, like how he goes and, you know, um, when, um, what's his name, Katsuhiro is watching him and Shiromafun, and he's like sitting there playing with a daisy, and Shiromafun's in the tree waiting for those guys to come, and he's kind of moving around. He's like kind of like a big cat, and uh, Katsuhiro's like that deep focus shot when he's like laying on his stomach and like looking through um, the flowers there. You get like you get this really profound sense of like how different and these people are and like what they're actually all about and what their value system is just through their body and the things that and the way that Kurosawa has has chosen to exemplify those things. You know what I mean? And then you have that shot, and then you have later that um, the swordsman guy again. What you said, um, yeah, Kyuzo. Um, He's just not there, and there's like the three guns, and they have one of the guns, and he's just not there, and he just comes back with a gun in his hand. You know what I mean? He's got his sword in his one hand, and he's got his gun in the other hand, and then he just sits down and like closes his eyes against the wall, and he's gonna like get a little bit of rest. Um, I find that characterization, which is I guess all writing, um, but that characterization more so even than the action stuff, I find really profound in this movie, and that's I think the stuff that Kurosawa does best is like finding the nuances of these people without having them to say what the nuances of them of of themselves are. Um but yeah, I mean the all the action stuff is like kind of undeniable. Yeah, along with the other stuff. Yeah, and it's 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 a movie that you know you, you don't want to spend too much time talking about just cuz it's been so exhaustively talked about, but it's 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 something you have to experience it. But it's, and it's, I think one of the problems in terms of like it, it being exhaustively talked about is that I think that experience aspect of it has been lost because people are analyzing every single frame of this and really it's just and even like I was disappointed I in like Roger Ebert's most as a whole it works most as a whole it works as a sensual like aesthetic thing like it's beautiful and it's and it sounds amazing and the tension is is just wonderful i mean it's you can feel like the tension of every single moment of this movie yeah and that's that's the problem like like you know like roger ebert mentioned that one review about like, talking about how like oh is that introduction of of combi like um like the first time you get like kind of like that unrelated introduction of uh action hero doing a mm-hmm. kind of you know secondary story or unrelated task it's like that doesn't matter like sure people yeah, who the reason cares? the reason people repeat this stuff, these tropes or these hallmarks, is because like it wasn't that they watched that scene and was like, oh, I want to do that thing again. They watched this movie and go like, this movie's fucking awesome. I want to do something that kind of like honors or respects that, or you know, repeats that. And that's why you know this thing is experience. This thing is is a product of uh, an entire project, a a, a whole being. You know, yes. it, it, 
I couldn't even imagine watching the Toho cut that like sliced 50 minutes off of this. Well, apparently the first half is like unwatchable because it's making yeah, it's sense. incomprehensible. Um, was that the one that that they showed at Venice Film Festival? Still, no, I think they showed a different. Co- it made the. I read a thing. I know he gets the silver lion at the Venice Film Festival. The I Golden re- lion goes, I think, to Romeo and fucking Juliet. Of course, Italian yeah. Um, I I think it was like a different. There was like a third, and all that can't win the yeah. Golden Lion that year. There was a third one, I think, that they did. I think on the waterfront that year too. Venice, yeah. Which is a Romeo, which is, but still Romeo and Juliet. It's a good movie. On the waterfront, it's okay. But Castellana's Romeo and Juliet. I don't know. I don't know, Mario. Come on, Venice. Do some silly shit sometimes. Get it together. Um, but no, I, you know, it's cool to like look at the things, the parts of it that work. But like, you, you, you this isn't something that's experienced in parts. This isn't no, you gotta watch the whole thing. Yeah, this is something that like. You don't care about the depths or what they're doing or, 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 or the tension of, of that battle. Um, or, you know, even, even, even the minutiae of the planning and whatnot of the preparation for the battle. It doesn't matter as much, you know, no matter how well shot and composed that battle scene is. It doesn't matter if you don't care about the 115, 120, 130 or so minutes that have been spent building these characters. You know, yeah. it doesn't matter. And, and um, yes, and you're right. And, and it's not even like the characters, like the characters, it's the nature of the village. You know what I mean? It's the actual stakes here. And then it gets revealed, spoiler alert, that like the stakes perhaps aren't so high as they were led to believe that they are. Because as to share Foon character says, like all farmers are liars and like they'll try to cheat you of anything and they've got a store of like food um and it's only like in the night before the last battle that like all this food that they've never seen before comes out these jugs of sake come out um you know all of these things that they were just kind of like sitting on you know what i mean Mm. and they didn't tell anybody they didn't tell the samurai about it like as far as the samurai knew they didn't have anything to eat that's why they're there they're doing their they're honorably defending these people that have nothing against these bandits while they're sitting on like a store of all of these things while like, you know, when the samurai get there, like none of the villagers come out to greet them because they're all afraid of what the samurai are going to do to like their village. That one specific guy that's afraid of what he's going to do to his daughter. Like, you know, that what samurais are going to take their daughter and they do because samurais, they get stuff done. Um, so he does take his daughter, but you get the beautiful scene when they go to the bandits headquarters and um, Rikishi's wife is just like staring like, you know, as it's almost like a scene that would be used later in Throne of Blood or something. You know what I mean? That just kind of like Have you seen Throne of Blood? Yeah. I've I've seen it a couple times. Yeah. Um, They're just kind of dead-eyed but um, dead-eyed but uh, like deep like an unknowable depth like into the into like in her eyes and like only Kurosawa's really doing that stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's it's the same thing. Like when I was watching this, I was thinking about Rashomon a lot. In the sense that he's made a movie in the sense that like we get to watch someone be murdered four times, and you get to watch like um you know a dead person speak through a medium, which is like one of the most profoundly beautiful shots like of all time. But it's not about like murder. You know what I mean? Like this movie is like the battle sequences are just like huge and. 
you know, raging and they're crazy, but it isn't really just about the battles. It's about, like, the battles, like you said, only matter because of all the work that went into establishing the fact that, like, this, of why it matters. Um, and it's the same thing with Rashomon, and it's kind of the same thing with Throne of Blood, is that he, and <laughs> it's the same thing with all of his movies. Um, you know, he establishes using a primarily visual media, like, just the visuals that, like, this person is this person and the story surrounding that person or the premise surrounding that person only really matters because like this character is this is this character and this is the world they live in and this is how they respond to it and this is how they interact with each other um it's just it's really fascinating his movies are endlessly fascinating no matter how many times you watch them or how many of them you watch, and there are a lot of Akira Kurosawa movies, which is awesome. You know, get the Criterion channel, you can watch many, slash, I think, all of the Kurosawa catalog on there. Um, They're endlessly rewarding, even if you're only looking for ways that they were influential to Star Wars. You know what I mean? Like, the Hidden Fortress, yes, the Hidden Fortress influenced Star Wars tremendously. It is also an amazing movie. Yeah. Amazing. Um... I don't know. Like, a, we could, yeah, we could do. I'm sure someone has. We should even look it up at a, a Kira Kurosawa podcast. Like, just watching the entire uh, Kurosawa is, catalog. Is Hidden Fortress on? I don't think Hidden Fortress is one of the movies that is not on, on the Criterion, channel. No. You can come over. Oh, no, it is. It is. Never mind. I found it. There you go. <laughs> um, yeah, I thought they were all on, but maybe they're not. Um, but yeah. Kajibusa might not be on. Let me see Kajibusa. Oh. Uh, looks like Kajimusha is not on there. Why? I don't know, man. They're really mad about it. It's fucked up. They're really mad about it. Come on, crack on Criterion Channel. Get your shit in order. That's a that's a strike. Yeah. Let's strike one. You have an Xbox or PlayStation Four app. Oh, and strike then, two then. Yeah. You don't have Kajimusha. Come on, Criterion. It's terrible. They do have, like, 15 videos related to Seven Samurai, though, so I guess that's... One of them has Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Yeah, they do have two different commentary tracks. An hour-long Origins and Influences um, documentary. And then several videos about it. And three trailers. It's always good. If you like to talk about trailers, you can talk about it on our Twitter com slash film pivotal uh or you can talk to us at our email which is also available uh pivotal film podcast at gmail.com or you can go to pivotalfilm.com uh and see a list of the movies or that are on our list or the beers that we drink or you can contact us or you can see how to subscribe to us or how to follow us or um you know whatever um next week's a big week um, pretty big, pretty big. I actually wasn't sure that we were going to get there, but I think now we have to finish Mario. Well, they added Manchurian Candidate to uh, Criterion Channel. Boy, it wasn't on the channel before. I don't think so. What's it's a, it's a really hard. It's a really hard uh, interface to, to look at. Sometimes. Let's hope it stays there. I don't know why. Why that would matter? No, I don't. Who knows? If you want to find out why that matters, you can watch a movie. On the, on the Criterion channel. Like the Venture, you get it. Uh, drink a beer. Um, 
related to the Manchurian Candidate. Um, and we will talk to you next week. And that's what you know Peace. Oh, God.